Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Features Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. And this is our first ever episode. Prachi, are you so excited? Joanna, I'm (laughs) very excited. I am too. I feel like we've been waiting for this for a long time. So in this podcast, we're going to every week look at a policy. We're going to examine what it means, how it affects you, practically what you can do to get around it. And we're also going to speak with experts like lawyers or activists or politicians to give us a deeper insight as to what the law means. Um, And just to clarify, a dick doesn't have to be a man. It could be a woman. It could be a legislative body. It could be a law or it could be your brother. You know, dicks come in all shapes and sizes. And there are a lot of politics podcasts out there, but ours is specifically going to focus on laws and upcoming legislation and lawmakers who are targeting women and people of color. Um, This week is a very special week because so much happened that we need to talk about. Namely, we have one ultimate dick of the week, our new president, Donald Trump. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. So that happened. I think in this podcast, we're going to have to actively work to not make him the dick of the week every week. I mean, he's really the dick of the next four years. Later in the episode, we're going to speak with Elise Hogue, who's the president of NARAL, about her experience at the Women's March and what we should be doing going forward. But first, we need to talk about the speech. It was both extremely short and extremely brutal in terms of the language. The Wall Street Journal reports that it's half the length of most inaugural addresses and the shortest speech since Jimmy Carter's in 1977, which makes sense because Donald Trump isn't known for being a powerful orator. So the language of the speech itself was not reconciliatory, which these speeches usually are. They're usually meant to kind of bring in the losing party and unite the country and say, I'm all of your presidents. I'm going to work for the betterment of the American people, blah, blah, blah. Donald Trump obviously didn't do that. Most alarming part that I found was his use of the phrase America first, which you might have heard if you've been paying attention to his speeches for the last couple of months. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. It is most notably the name of an isolationist anti-Semitic national organization in the 1940s that urged the U.S. not to intervene in Hitler's Germany. So that is a loaded phrase. So comforting. So So comforting. Um, And, I mean, maybe if Donald Trump had written the speech himself, as he had claimed in his ridiculous Twitter photo, um, he could have been forgiven for not knowing the reference, maybe. But it turns out that Steve Bannon, a well-versed racist and anti-Semite who is now one of the top officials in a Trump administration and was a former... Uh, head of Breitbart, which is a platform for for what he calls the alt-right, which is, again, another anti-Semitic racist group, uh, wrote it along with senior advisor Stephen Miller. So there's no doubt that they knew what they were referencing. Yes, Steve Bannon knows exactly what America is. It was very intentional. 
So Jezebel was actually there for the whole thing. On Thursday morning, Thursday the 19th, 11 of us piled into two different cars to drive down to D.C. from New York for inauguration and the Women's March on Washington. I was told this was an insane idea. It got off to kind of a rocky start. Ellie, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm looking for my phone. Um, can we just start off this trip on the right foot by losing my phone? It would seem fitting that you can't find it. It would seem fitting. This does happen to me most days. That was Jezebel staff writer Ellie Sheckett, and rest assured, she did find her phone. Oh my god, oh my god! There it is! And so we eventually were off and on our way. Calculating route. On the actual day of the inauguration, I stayed in the house with some of the other editors while we had like eight staff writers and reporters out in the field. And Prachi was one of the people who was in the field. This is Prachi Gupta, senior reporter. Will you tell us about your experience? My experience was very boring and similar <laughs> to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um. So I, by the way, this was my first week at Jezebel. <laughs> so this was my, uh, I think, third day on the job. It was third like or fourth pushing day on the a job. baby bird out of a nest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the most interesting first week I've definitely ever had at work. So I went out with Melissa Murray, who's one of our video producers here. And just to paint the picture for you, it was a, a gray, kind of rainy day. I think as staff writer Madeline Davies wrote in her piece, it was sort of like God was crying <laughs> um, or the sky was crying and we kept crying for the next couple of days, I guess. Um, we eventually found our way down to a few blocks from the White House near Fl Franklin Square and McPherson Square. That's where 230 protesters were arrested, including six journalists who've, who've been slapped with felony charges. They face up to 10 years in prison. But the protests when I was there were also still a little bit crazy. I witnessed helicopters going overhead, a limo being set on fire, and garbage cans that were overturned in the street with bonfires, and cops in riot gear threatening to use tear gas, and they came up to the crowds with rubber bullets. So it was eerie. I could not believe I was in the nation's capital. Melissa described it as being on the set of a Michael Bay film, <laughs> which I thought was pretty accurate. <laughs> Daddy! Oh, they're not taking me anywhere. I'm an American. But that was such, such a contrast to just 24 hours later, or less than 24 hours later, when we had one of the biggest demonstrations in U.S. history. It was if the, not biggest. the biggest. Yeah, yeah. the biggest. Um, led and organized by women against a Trump administration, and it was so peaceful, not a single arrest, and people were jubilant, and the mood was the complete opposite. I also just want to give a shout out to all the male politicians who didn't understand what the hell the Women's March was about. I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, by some of the misogynistic responses from male politicians who just thought the Women's March was absolutely ridiculous and didn't understand what women were marching for or why. Or and these politicians who think they're so freaking funny. 
by doing these like very stale sexist jokes like yeah it's a women's right to make me a sandwich right so I went out with deputy editor Kate Drees while you were out with Melissa and as soon as we left the house people were in march gear you don't watch your tiny hands anywhere near her like it, it was the absolute opposite of what I heard inauguration day was like. Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea, that it was just maybe like a mile or two away from where the march was supposed to begin. It was all? It, it was just the streets were filled with people in their pink pussy hats and cheering. And you know, we when we walked down the street, like for the first block or two, I almost cried because this is kind of a nerdy analogy, but or maybe just an annoying one. But if anyone, if any of you have run marathons, it felt like God no. <laughs> okay, I knew Please I was gonna don't get. Bring a I knew like that I was gonna get slack for that. <laughs> uh, maybe I should. We should just cut that. No, it's like no you have to stand by it. You have. But to it really it did. It really did feel like that. Where, it, but more awesome when people are just out on the streets cheering you on. Um, but we were all united for a cause that we believed in, which is basic human rights and women's rights and LGBT rights and and rights for Im- immigrants and pretty much everybody who's not a straight white man who as, feels threatened. As someone who has not run a marathon, I did also feel equally moved. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also had the experience of, like, turning a corner and then, like, welling up with tears for no reason <laughs> and it was so stupid because like nothing would prompt it I would just be like yeah I was so to be unhinged. fair I don't usually cry during marathons so just <laughs> okay. F- just we'll FYI <laughs> we'll remember um we dove into the thick of it and spoke to a bunch of marchers who were there and we started off by asking them why they had decided to come to DC I'm deeply concerned that the leader of the free world is a predator I just can't tolerate someone as repugnant as this person who actually thinks that he is the face of America and claims that he is uh, the popular vote where he and the rest of those people are the minority. We live in southern Maryland, which is a rural county, and it's very red. It's very Republican. But I think that even in a blue state like Maryland, people are beginning to see that there is a difference. And the person that we elected was not even a real Republican. Are there specific dicks you have issues with? Chris Christie, I can't stand him. <laughs> uh, Trey Gowdy is one that comes to mind right away. Um, Lindsey Graham, although he is moderate in some of his social policies, his military um, emphasis or zeal is a little bit troublesome. And uh, then we've got some dogs and cats in there that are truly frightening. I would say the biggest dick right now is, is President Trump and his, and his little friend, Mr. Pence. And what kinds of actions have you planned this weekend and then going forward for the next couple of years? We start with this one. So, and then we plan to be in our community every time that is possible. So I'll be marching a lot. I'll probably lose weight and have to buy another pair of shoes. Being a part of movements like this, you know, being involved and getting your voices heard, writing letters to your congressmen, your mayors, you know, just let it be known that you want change. And can you tell me about your sign? Yes, this is actually a quote from The Handmaid's Tale. I just finished reading it. Don't let the bastards get you down, and I invite President Trump to to revisit reading. Yeah, uh, it says, this is my first protest march, but it won't be my last. And being that I am an immigrant female, my sign says, respeta mi existencia o espera resistencia, which translates in English to respect my existence or expect resistance. 
One of the interesting things that I found about interviewing people is that usually when you go into a crowd to try and interview people who are in it, I find I met with a lot of resistance or people that don't want to talk to me. But I didn't talk to one person that day who was not willing to be interviewed and who also wasn't very smart about the issues they were talking about. And I was shocked. To yeah. Find that. Uh, when I was out with Melissa with the Facebook Live camera, I mean, we're walking around with a camera shoved in people's faces. And generally, people are a little wary of that, uh, understandably so. But people were eager to talk about the issues. One thing that I just wanted to bring up is that a lot of um, women of color and people of color have said that the march wasn't inclusive to them and it was kind of and that was the reason that there were no arrests because it was dominated by white women and police. Yeah, you know, that's something that I personally struggled with a little bit during the march as well. There were a couple of moments where I almost felt a little bit angry. There was a moment where I wondered, you know, where where were these women during the election? You know, when women of color were really terrified and sounding the alarm on Donald Trump, you know, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And it's great to see this show of support now. But when women of color take to the streets, typically, they're not met with such glee and support. And senior writer at Jezebel, Kara Brown, wrote an article talking about you should Go look at it. It's a great article. It's really good. Um, But basically the thesis of it was that she doesn't trust white women to show up again, although she wants to trust them. And basically what we're going to be talking about moving forward in this episode and on the podcast is how to make sure you didn't just go to the march and then people never do anything else again. Right. (laughs) Um, So – On Thursday night, Jezebel hosted a panel called What to Do When You're Expecting the Worst, along with Fusion, Emily's List, and Washington Parks and People in D.C., where a lot of these questions about how to move forward, about how the protest isn't where you stop, um, were addressed. So for me, this, this, this mass mobilization is an opportunity to wake up the silent majority, to let this administration know that we will not sit by idly as they target the most marginalized community, many of whom have already been marginalized. That's Linda Sarsour, one of the Women's March organizers, and she's also the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York. She's such a badass. Right now she's talking about how this protest is called the Women's March, but it's not just about reproductive rights or one specific thing or even just the rights of women. So as Linda was saying and as we were talking about before, this protest was amazing. It was historic, but obviously... We need to keep it going, the momentum going. Even in the past week, Donald Trump has signed several executive orders that were explicitly the opposite of the platform of the Women's March, like the global gag rule and pushing forward the pipelines. And now the immigration ban on countries that are predominantly Muslim. It's clear that we're up against something enormous that nobody is prepared for. And I think one of our panelists, Heather McGee, who's the president of Demos, which is a policy organization, Um, really hit it home when she talked about how we need to change our mindset moving forward because we are really not in the same world that we were in a week ago. We have to be outraged every single day, and it's exhausting. And so do whatever you need to do to rest, take your vitamins, get your exercise (laughs) machine up, stay outraged, don't just absorb the outrage, don't just read it, but speak it out all the time. 
Um, I don't know about you, Prachi, but I certainly have found that being outraged and terrified every day is really um, wearing on my personal health. So I really appreciate Heather's advice. Yes, Joanna, please be taking your vitamins. Now we're going to welcome to the show Elise Hogue, president of NARAL, which is a leading abortion rights group in America. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for doing the show. Elise, what was your experience at the Women's March? One of deep awe and um, gratitude. I think that, uh, you know, we experienced what I call an organic uprising, um, that that's what it looks like when the dam breaks and people are activated and motivated from all corners of the country. I mean, I was at the march in D.C., which was absolutely I mean, dumbfounding. Um, I stood on the stage and I couldn't see the end of the crowd in any different direction. But I was as excited that day, um, which was hard to top the excitement of being in D.C. by seeing the pictures from Chicago and Denver and Greenville, South Carolina and Antarctica and recognizing that what had been sparked was a movement moment that will power us through these dark times. This was a historically big protest in U.S. history. We had hundreds of thousands of people in cities across the country, as you said. Um, But the thing I'm kind of struggling with, and maybe we don't have to put it in such harsh terms, but are we at a high point or a low point? Because it feels like a low point. (laughs) Um, I mean, look, this is the duality of of how life works, right? We can't stop everything, right? We can't stop everything. But what we're seeing is a movement that says it doesn't have to be this way. We have leadership, we have numbers, and we have commitment to not only try and minimize the damage that this president will do, but also rebuild and show our country and our world that— There is a different pathway forward, and quite honestly, one that's led by women who have long been the ethical and moral compasses of humanity all over the world. You refer to this as a movement. I'm wondering if this event felt different to you. It it felt like how did it feel like the beginning of a movement to you when you were at the march? It was an acute point in time where various um, organizers, institutions, lawmakers all have to grapple with the magnitude of force where uh, women and women allies are recognizing our common interest in fighting the draconian measures that have already been underway under President Trump. Those movement moments are critically, critically important because they give a sense of the scope of resistance and the level of commitment to do it differently. How that gets done differently is through what I call acts of daily resistance, right? And that means that um, we're not going to actually see 5 million people on the streets every single day. That's not reasonable. That's not doable. And that's also not what durable change looks like. But that scope and that magnitude gets channeled in a multitude of directions, from the local to the state to the federal to the cultural to the political, um, where 
women are being recognized and supporting each other and moving into positions of leadership and putting forward ideas that are not just good for us, but what we know from all over the world is that when women are given the tools and the leadership and the dignity to be able to chart our own course and thrive, not only do we do better, but our families do better, our communities do better, and our entire country does better. So speaking of of the movement and leadership, I'm wondering, one of the big parts of this is the Democratic Party. And right now, it's sort of leaderless. Um, there was talk of you considering running for DNC chair, uh, which you decided not to do. But I'm wondering then what you want to see from Democratic Party leaders right now. What I want to see from our Democratic Party leaders is um, commitment and resistance. I don't think that um, we're in a place where collaboration is going to gain us anything tangible. Um, But I also think that what I want to see from Democratic Party leadership is their commitment to listening right, to listening to people who flooded the streets, to listening to people in their cities and their towns, and being reflective of the concerns of folks who really, really need the party to be a home for our safety, our security, and our progress. But I also would say, Prachi, because I think it's really important, I've also learned how little we actually utilize the party apparatus. Um, And and so the communication has to go two ways. Um, You know, I am not one who believes that the party is beyond reform. The party is actually us. If you go to local party meetings, you'll find that they are looking for the kinds of organizing and commitment and positive vision and leadership that we all have to offer. So it goes both ways. So I do think that as you're kind of hinting at some people have been disappointed in in the party and especially feel like it's proven itself inadequate in the face of Trump and his national nationalist politics um especially for something like reproductive rights because the fate of those rights lies so squarely in legislation so i'm wondering if there's any way like do we have to flood the zone with Democrats in office, or is there any way to fight effectively from outside it? And and additionally, how are you supposed to fight against an administration that continuously shows itself to be so fact-averse? I think what we all have to grapple with in the short term are a few facts. One is we are going to lose right now. And if we lose and take our marbles and go home and decide we can't make change, we fall prey to a trap that um, really does play into the idea that party politics is the only vector for change. You have to remember that the extreme anti-choice movement that seeks to hold women down and disempower us at every turn, they played the long game. They are where they are because they have been working every day for 40 years at the state, local, and federal level um, to get their people into positions to do what is happening now. We also have to play the long game. You know, when when one area of potential change contracts, others open. And politics is usually the most risk-averse to change. So that doesn't mean we stop fighting and we hold up champions and we um, try and defeat folks who aren't with us. But it does mean we need to think about other opportunities to exert our influence. We are the majority in this country. Women are just numerically the majority. The vast majority of Americans voted for Hillary Clinton and the 
popular vote. Um, and when it comes specifically to abortion rights and support for contraception and family planning and women being able to have their own agency to plan their futures, we are certainly the vast majority. And so we need to make our voices heard. Again, daily acts of resistance, recognizing that the most radical political work we can do right now is from the ground up. Let's take over and support the city councils and the mayors who are saying, I won't let you tell me what to do in my city, whether it's registering Muslims or um, restricting women's reproductive freedom. I won't let you do that. We need to build that power at the local level because that kind of arm-in-arm solidarity with the people we can look at in the eye, that's what's going to keep us safe and moving forward. All the points that you just listed are so hopeful. Um, they're reason for people to get energized and out there and active. It's reminiscent to what how Gloria Steinem has described this moment, and she wrote in The Guardian recently, maybe we're about to be free. Um, others have described this as the last death rattle of white supremacy in the United States is what we're seeing and the reaction to that. Are you hopeful that this is uh, sort of the last death rattle of male white supremacy? Oh, I actually absolutely think it is. I think that um, we are standing, you know, at, at a fork in the road, and ultimately we will choose the right fork. The question that I think we have to really grapple with is um, how long is that death rattle, right? Like, how long does it actually take? How do we minimize that? And, and how do we minimize the destruction in the wake? How practically... How have you kept going? How are we supposed to keep going? How do we, on a day-to-day -day level, just maintain stamina? Um, we need to look around in our communities and be able to uh, register the bad, but take inspiration from the good, because it's all around us. And our daily acts of resistance will vary. One day it may be marching in the streets. One day it may be calling your senator, whether that feels futile or not. It's an important action to take. One day it may just be standing up for a woman who looks different from you, who is brown or black in the train station, who's being harassed. This is about the life we choose every moment of every day, and that's what keeps me going. Looking around, seeing people with whom we recognize our common humanity, and exercising that both in who we are and what we do. I just have one more question. I don't know how you'll answer this. What are you going to do today or tomorrow? <laughs> I'm actually posting on all of my social media channels my daily acts of resistance. So you can go uh, to at Elise H on Instagram or my Facebook feed, Elise Hogue, and you can see what I'm doing every day. What I did today was post pictures of two very, very close friends of mine who are deeply involved in immigrants' rights um, movements and say, you know, for me, what I'm doing today is looking what immigrants' rights organizations speak to me that I can support, but I'm also actually going to reach out to someone who is an immigrant and invite them over for dinner and get to know that common humanity. Tomorrow will be different. Uh, two days ago it was to buy a book that moved me. It is the daily acts of resistance that um, are going to keep us moving forward, but someday it really is going to be go into the hearing room and protest the the nomination of Jeff, Jeff Sessions or this upcoming Supreme Court nominee. So some of the acts are large, some are small, they all matter. Elise Hogue, president of NARAL, thank you so much for joining us. 
This was a great conversation. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Loved being here. So we recognize that this episode has been pretty heavy and that our episodes moving forward will likely also be heavy, even though we try to speak about the issues with smiles on our faces. These are dark times. (laughs) These are very dark times. So we are going to end the episode with a segment called How to Handle the Dicks that gives you practical advice on, you know, surviving in a world that doesn't want you to survive to be... (laughs) What a positive spin on it, Joanna. Was that too thanks, much? Thanks for that. Um, yeah, but basically. <laughs> but about, also it's true. But also it's true. Basically just information about what we're doing that are, that's making us a little bit happier. Prachi, what are you doing? How uh, are you handling the dicks? So the, the things that I'm doing, which are maybe not the healthiest, uh, but they're certainly a little bit helpful, is I've recently been – I'm not proud of this, but – I'm admitting it to all of you. Uh, I'm I'm indulging a little bit more in like food and wine, and uh, I've been I've done things recently like eating. I, I've definitely eaten ice cream and cold pizza for breakfast Prachi. in the past couple of weeks. And this is so lame that you're so ashamed of this. <laughs> like okay. It's like I'm living like a normal person. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that that's that normal. It's I bet it is. I definitely <laughs> brought some ice cream into my bed a few weeks ago and just had it at like 9 a.m. And it was amazing. And then I had a dessert for dinner one night with a big glass of wine. And it was one of the best dinners I've ever had. Sounds like you're living well. I, I am. Yeah. I Don't worry. I'm also – I'm not going to get scurvy or anything. I'm still eating vegetables and fruit, you know, <laughs> just – just a lot more ice cream and wine. Just insight into Joanna's life. I can't drink red wine because my lips are too porous. What? <laughs> what does that mean? They turn blue. Um, just so we know. So I can't take that advice, but it's I'm good sorry. advice for people who don't who don't suffer from porous lip. Um, for me, I have been for the past like month in earnest. I've been exercising like four times a week, and I know that I'm doing it so that if there's some kind of emergency, I can run more than two <laughs> blocks. <laughs> because I w- That's really healthy. A month ago, smart. if I had had to escape, I would never be able to. Not to get too personal, but I sprained my ankle a few weeks ago. So it's very personal. That is normally <laughs> – yeah, I know. <laughs> you guys know a lot about me right now. <laughs> um, and uh, that would normally be my – like number one outlet because I love running as now I've mentioned several several (laughs) times Uh, but I can't run right now so I I go to the gym but it's not the same you can't run right now so you're drinking so I'm drinking hitting the bottle yeah very 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 healthy alternative to running yep Thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of Big Time Dicks. If you have a Big Time Dick you'd like us to talk about, email us at bigtimedicks at jezebel.com. This podcast was produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight from Jezebel Deputy Editor Kate Drees. Our executive director of audio is Mondana Mofidi. Our theme music is by Stuart Wood. And special thanks to the people who lent their voices at the march. Grace from Atlanta, Jonathan, Monica Lee Silbus, Aisha Muhaiman, Mary Jo Franks, 
Sarah from St. Louis, Agatha Arias, Barb Allen, Natasha Nimpa, Nancy Cottett, and Renata Solorzano de Souza. <laughs>